the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, listeners, to our very first season six episode of Hotel Bar Sessions Afterthoughts. They say you never get a chance to make a first impression, so we designed this to give us a first chance to make a second impression. (laughs) Whether it's diving into a particularly thought-provoking comment, exploring new angles, or uncovering new ideas that we missed the first time around, Afterthoughts is all about plumbing the depths of our previous conversations. So today, Rick, Jason, and I are going to look back over our first three episodes. That's episode 76 on Casablanca, episode 77 on human nature, and episode 78, in which we were joined by Justin Jock to discuss his book, Revolutionary Mathematics, and try to articulate what we woulda, coulda, and shoulda said the first time around. (laughs) So sit back, relax, and join us as we delve into what kept us thinking long after our recording stopped. First of all, welcome back, you guys. Rick, Jason, how are you? Good. How are you? Doing well. (laughs) Nice. I think we started off season six pretty strong. Not only did we inaugurate our new co-host, the inimitable Jason Reed. Yay! Right? But we also introduced the first installment of this new series, HBS Goes to the Movies, in which we choose a film, read it as a text, and try to excavate what's philosophically interesting or important in it. And I'm really excited to talk about this new series because, as Deleuze argued in his cinema books, film is not only a tool for creating new perceptions and ways of seeing the world, but the movement and time captured in film can be a means of breaking free from the constraints of classical philosophy and its focus on fixed and static forms. So before we jump into our reconsiderations of episode 76 on Casablanca, I'd love to hear first your thoughts about this new HBS Goes to the Movies series. Why cinema is philosophically important, or more specifically, what cinema offers that philosophical texts do not or cannot. I mean, I think the fall of Deleuze's point, one of the things that Deleuze says about cinema and philosophy that I think is interesting is he says that philosophers, and I think he would say since Hegel, have been trying to put thought into motion, not just think isolated propositions, but try and make thought itself movable, flexible, constantly reconsidering things from different angles. And I think that the movie also kind of puts thought in motion because as you're watching a movie, you're constantly thinking what's happening now, how does this tie together, but you're also constantly watching thinking as you're watching both characters represent certain thoughts as we talked about with Casablanca as we watched Rick change his mind and change his actions in the world, but you're also watching not to get too complicated with this, you're also watching the way the film 
presents what's happening in the world of the film. You're watching the film having a commentary on these actions as well. So there's a kind of thought cubed in the film. (laughs) You're thinking, the characters are thinking, and in some sense, the director or the screenplay or the overall picture is also engaged in an act of thought. And the interrelations between those different types of thought are really interesting because they can vary, because people are going to always see films differently, and because it is an attempt to kind of capture a stream of a certain kind of consciousness that's reflected back to us. Rick? So I actually am of mixed minds about the relationship between philosophy and film. On the one hand, sometimes I feel like, can't we just enjoy a film? And, (laughs) you know, sometimes films are just fun. I remember a situation in which some colleagues of mine and I were talking with a grad student who was excited she was going to teach next year our philosophy and film course. And one of my colleagues said, so you're probably going to want to center that around Talladega Nights, right? (laughs) Now, she had never seen Talladega Nights because she watched films. She didn't watch movies. So part of me is like, yeah, some movies are just fun to watch. But on the other hand, in talking with you all and and rewatching a movie, knowing we're going to talk about it. I really do get to see how concepts, they might not be natively philosophical concepts, but concepts nonetheless are presented in a way that is not textual. And to present thought, concepts, ideas in a non-textual way really opens up their presentation and may fundamentally change what those concepts are about. And so, like, just to use Casablanca as an example, to present, you know, something like Rick's moral dilemma in a film rather than as if it were an example in some textbook that was a collection of essays on moral philosophy. And one would say, <laughs> imagine Mr. Blaine. Mr. Blaine owns a bar. It- so to present the <laughs> concepts visually and within the timing of a film, I think really opens them up in ways that texts don't. And that really excites me because like the two of you probably, I spend most of my time with my nose in a book. <laughs> what about you, Lee? What is your take on philosophy and film? I think for me, the greatest thing about reading a film as a text is that it recenters the role of subjectivity, either because you're looking at events happening through specific subjects' experiences, or you're looking at specific subjects' experiences through your own subjective lens. And there's no way to pull that lens Mm. away. So I do think that this is one of those things that philosophy, unfortunately, occludes, is the primacy of our subjective view of Mm. things. And films, in some way, kind of remind us that, you know, we're all subjects. We're all subjects embedded in bodies and social relations and stories that involve other subjects that are also embedded in bodies Mm. and stories and social relations. And it's much more complicated to work out theory when you've got all these subjects (laughs) involved. (laughs) So let's just jump into episode 76, which was our first episode of HBS Goes to the Movies, where we talked about Casablanca. So I want to kind of start us off with this thought. I was thinking after listening back to the episode, if I wanted to rewrite Casablanca in 2022, 
I'm not sure that the plot would be very different. I'm not actually, I'm not sure that the plot wouldn't be exactly the same. Mm. But I don't think it could be rewritten with Sam as the protagonist. So I know that we talked about this a lot in our episode on Casablanca. Like, what actually is the role of Sam? And I do think that trying to reimagine Casablanca with Sam as the protagonist and not as a narrator Mm. or witness Mm. would be basically impossible But everything else about Casablanca could be rewritten in 2022 exactly the same way. Yeah, let me pose that to you guys. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking a lot about Sam. And even though we did discuss Sam, the role of Sam and the racial implications and racist implications of the character of Sam, I wish that I had thought at the time that Sam is presented in a very complex way that maybe the screenwriter, the director, and even the actor is not always in control of. And sometimes the presentation is quite radical, and sometimes it's quite reactionary. So we looked at some of the ways in which Sam plays a role in the narrative, some of the racist implications of Sam's role. But I think we didn't look at also the ways in which that character is really not decidedly one thing or another. Now, that being said, I think that there is a need for Sam's character to either narrate or anchor the changing relationship between Sam and Ilza. And I think, Lee, you're right. I don't think you could rewrite this from Sam's perspective. Or it would be a really short film that would be like, you fucking people just need to get on with it. Or he would just be the narrator. Right. Of a film about Rick and Ilsa or Laszlo and Ilsa. You could write a sequel about Sam, though. I I think that would be a great – I would go see that film. (laughs) Yeah, starting with like where the fuck is he at the end of the movie? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Although I do think part of the question about the whole like from Sam's perspective is one of the things that's interesting about Casablanca is a certain kind of singularity of the film – I mean, it has a noir-esque sensibility. It's kind of a war film, but not a war film. It's hard to categorize it in some ways, even though like the studios did try to duplicate it. They made like To Have and To Have Not, which is a similar mm-hmm. kind of story. Also, with Humphrey Bogart, the same role, they did try to duplicate it. But there's something about it. And if you read accounts of its coming together, they were like – it literally came together in the moment. Like they didn't – the script was constantly being rewritten. There's a lot that sort of suggests that there's something very unduplicated about this film, yeah, which I think is interesting. Though I do think, and I think this is maybe something I wish we talked a little more about, that it's often imitated but never duplicated, right? I mean, the, the obsession with the sort of anti-hero role and why anti-heroes have become so much more, especially not just with film, but like with the later era of prestige TV, these sort of morally conflicted, not necessarily heroic characters have become so much more interesting. And in some ways, the world is kind of caught up with Casablanca in the sense that we've now all decided that the Victor Lazos of the world are totally boring and we've had enough of them and we all want more stories about the various Ricks of the world. I completely agree with that, Jason. And I just want to put the comment that I'm about to make in context. So I'm from Memphis and actually just a couple of days ago, 
was when the Tyree Nichols video was released. Tyree Nichols was a young man who was beaten to death by police in Memphis. And I thought about this in relation to our discussion today, because I thought, why aren't there more films about the resistance? Because Mm -hmm. You know, as a person from Memphis, there is a whole network of resistance fighters who work hard every day. And, you know, I wonder, like, why aren't there more films about them? But as I was thinking about that, I thought the problem is, is that unlike Casablanca, we understand, I think, as a culture, and obviously there are disagreements about this, but at least in this context, the context of the Tyree Nichols police brutality, we all understand who the villains are. Right. We all understand metaphorically who the Nazis are in this scenario. We don't really all agree on who the heroes are. We don't all agree that resistance is heroic anymore. Right. And I wonder when we lost that. Yeah, wow. So I wasn't expecting the conversation to go in that direction. Sorry. No, no, because it's a really interesting question. What has clearly changed from the situation in which Casablanca was made to a situation in which it is impossible to make Casablanca in relation to contemporary movements of resistance is, as you put it, Lee, it is not clear to everyone who the hero is, or to put it a different way, different people choose different people as the heroes. And because we can't agree that these people are the heroes, and because of that disagreement, we also think other people are villains. So who I think might be a hero, someone else might think is actually a villain. It really is impossible to to make a film like this, but the question is why? I think there's, for me, a more fundamental question, and that is who benefits in the Mm -hmm. situation in which we are unable to rally around a resistance? And I think that's, for me, a question that's more answerable than the question, why can't we agree on who the heroes are? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it seems like we can agree on who the villains are. Yes. Although I mean, maybe not as a category, right? Like, I mean, obviously, most Americans are not a cab, right? <laughs> but most Americans who view this video would say these cops did wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. But part of the problem there is that in saying these cops did wrong, you're actually not pointing wide enough to the actual villains. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And I think other people are content to say, no, look, murder's wrong and, and these cops are just murderers and that's why they're the villains is because they're murderers, not because they're cops. But I wonder if the issue about the depiction of resistance has also to do with the individual and collectivity I mean, I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that's interesting about the film, and I know we talked about this, is the line, you know, the problems of two people don't amount to a hill of beans in this Mm. world. The film is in some sense aware of how minor the characters are, yet it still is very much a film about those characters and the decisions they make. I sometimes feel like the famous end scene, the beautiful friendship walking off into the fog, is also the film kind of addressing the limits of what itself can represent. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I think it's a very interesting line that Susan Buck Morris says in her book, uh, Dream World and Catastrophe, where she talks about early Soviet and early American film. And she says the early Soviet film was trying to create a mass subject. And she's thinking here about people like Eisenstein. Mm-hmm. And you look at some of his movies like Strike and Battleship Potemkin in October and the way in which like there are specific people – but there's a certain way in which the character of Strike is the workers in that factory. Right. The camera constantly moves from worker to worker and they're recognizable faces, but it is in some sense an attempt to make a collectivity a subject of a film. And she says that in contrast to this, American film tried to make a collective object of desire and that object was a celebrity. With a movie like Casablanca, it's interesting because it is very much a part of the mystique of Bogart and everything else about the film. But there is a certain sense in which the film seems to make this decision to acknowledge collective struggle, even though it recognizes that it can't really represent collective struggle, which is why the film ends when that begins. Mm. I mean, going back to sequels, if they ever were to make a real sequel of Casablanca – by the way, Hollywood don't do this (laughs) – it would have to be about the beautiful friendship and joining the resistance, but in some sense – That would be terrible because it would probably, more than the film, reduce the collective action of resistance to individual action and individual heroism. And I think the film sort of recognizes that once collectivity begins, Hollywood film just kind of dissipates into the fog. It can't film this. And I think that is underlined by the character of Victor Laszlo, because he obviously is a kind of hero of the resistance. And yet the film gives us no way to understand how he became the hero of the resistance. But it does obviously heroicize the character of Victor Laszlo. Rick said in the episode, nobody argues with necessity, right? (laughs) Like the individuals, qua individuals, are just acting out of necessity or realizing that they're acting out of necessity. And this is something that I really, after listening to it again, kind of wanted to bring up. That up until the end, isn't the whole movie really dramatizing people arguing with necessity? (laughs) I mean, even in the end... When each of the characters have more or less resigned themselves to their quote-unquote necessary fates, Rick gives us this famous line, but we'll always have Paris, Mm. which seems, again, to be a kind of arguing with necessity. Right. Yeah, even though we'll never have Paris, we'll always have Paris. (laughs) Yeah, right. Even though we don't fucking have Paris, (laughs) we'll always have Paris. I mean, I I think this really gets to Jason's distinction between reading this film as a film about individual loves, heartbreaks, and struggles – Or reading this film as a film about broader world historical events in which individuals don't amount to a hill of beans. But I think there's an indecisiveness. And I think that indecisiveness on the part of the film is what makes it interesting. And I'm not saying that this indecisiveness is intentional on anyone's part in making the film. But there is a way in which at the beginning, when Rick is contemplating her reappearance in his bar with Victor Laszlo, he is angry at her because he thinks that she was having an affair. And when she decided to go back to Victor Laszlo, she dumped him and changed her mind about having the affair. And so it was an individual moral problem. 
And I think when he decides to give her and Victor the letters of transit, as Jason pointed out throughout that episode, the magical letters of transit. (laughs) Yeah, right. um, When he decides to give them the letters of transit, there he's now casting this no longer as a moral problem, but a political problem, no longer as an individual Mm. problem, but as a collective problem. And that kind of indecision, I think, is for me one of the things that makes the movie so powerful. Yeah, it's also what makes the depiction of love entirely sacrificial, Mm. kind of pathological in the film. Mm. Depending on how religious you are, you might not think that love as sacrificial is pathological, (laughs) but in regular person's everyday lives, it is pathological to think of love as always sacrificial. Well, unless we're going to make this an afterthought about the episode on Casablanca, (laughs) I I think we might want to talk about some of the other episodes. So let's move to episode 77, which was on human nature. I was struck in listening to it, a point that Jason made, and we talked a little bit about it, but I wish we had pushed it in a different direction. Namely, when he pointed out the ease with which our students in the classroom are willing to say the struggle of all against all, competition, and so on, well, that's just human nature, and there's nothing we could do Mm -hmm. about that socially or politically. I started thinking as listening, and I actually had to stop listening because I realized I was no longer listening and just thinking about the moment in which that becomes such an automatic response on the part of our students. I wish we had talked a bit more about what's going on at that moment. I actually saw a comment thread on Facebook in response to this episode where somebody said, do they, and they're talking about us guys, (laughs) do they really not understand why people have children? (laughs) So first I want to say, no, I really don't know why people have children in this day and age. But second, and more to the point, I think this commenter's question really gets to the kind of rhetorical heart of what we were asking in the episode. Namely, if you believe that human beings are inherently self-interested or selfish, then how do we explain a number of phenomena we regularly observe in human interactions? Altruism, empathy, self-sacrifice, or any iteration of non-self-interested actions that are motivated by moral sensibility. Well, I think that one of the things that occurs to me is that in the episode, we talked a little bit about like there's almost a platonic tendency in students jumping to human nature Mm -hmm. and going to essences rather than thinking, you know, situations and so on. And I think maybe to really answer the question of why the picture of self-interested human nature, why human nature itself is often seen as an answer to social, political, or other types of issues has to do with the sort of hierarchy of the different types of knowledges and the role that psychological explanations play in our society or individualistic explanations play in our society and why those are seen as more alluring or more accessible than social, political, or other types of explanations. And also to some extent, The other issue is the inability to think historically. 
right? To recognize human beings haven't always been this way, yeah. but that requires an understanding of history and an engagement with history beyond some of the ways that history is represented, say, in popular culture, yeah. which is often, you know, as I think Zizek says, the Flintstones philosophy of history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where like the people are basically the same. They have the same motivations, the same interests. The only thing that changes is how they meet those interests, right? So that that kind of view of history that people have always been the same, because the other thing not to rag on students too much, but the other thing students love to do is say, since the beginning of time, <laughs> people have – and so those two things, human nature and the beginning of the time response, both show a real inability to think historically. And let me just say for my brother-in-law, David, that when we use the word platonic, as Jason did, we have in mind – and this is not something one might find directly in Plato's text, but we have in mind that there is a real human, a human as such. That's a kind of ideal, and everything that is a human is in relation to that kind of ideal. So I hope, David, you can follow that. But I also want to say, sure, there are phenomena like empathy and fellow feeling, but the way in which we now consider them, precisely because we consider everyone by nature to be selfish, those become moral virtues. Like We don't have to teach people how to be self-interested. We have to teach them how to be empathetic, altruistic, how to take care of things we have in common. And the fact that now these values that fly in the face of self-interest have to be elevated and taught as moral virtue shows the fact that we have become fundamentally different and that those aspects of human experience are not fundamental to human experience as we understand it today. I think we might have missed the opportunity to really kind of hone in on an important boundary in the concept of human nature, namely whatever is common to all human beings, regardless of cultural, social, or individual differences. We jumped right into the way that human nature is used to forward broader arguments, but we might have missed that we can only employ that concept in broader arguments because it is immediately evident to us that there is something common mm. among mm. all human beings. You know, I mentioned a few of these common elements, natality, mortality, mm. embodiment, and these are not insignificant commonalities among right. human beings. <laughs> Would you guys like agree on at least these things? Natality, mortality, and embodiment. I agree, but I also would add a fourth common thing, and the common thing is to be shaped by one's culture. Mm. And I think that fourth thing really, in some sense, scrambles how much importance or how we can understand the other three as framing a certain commonality, right? I mean, yeah. we know because we come from the world of philosophy, we know that even though embodiment's important and integral and common, something we share, a lot, a lot of philosophers who were given a lot of respect in the Western tradition didn't think that was necessarily true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it sort of like goes back to the point you made from Charles Mills that only a white person would wonder whether or not he had a body. And so I do think that because of that fourth thing, what are you going to call it, culture, history, etc., those other three are true, but they don't offer a commonality or basis of recognition because they must necessarily pass through the fourth 
term. Right. And so in some sense, what we have in common as human beings is to be shaped by our social relations. And that commonality is a paradoxical commonality because it sometimes can undermine the other commonalities that we all have. That emphasis on enculturation is, I think, really insightful and, and incredibly important because the other things, Lee, you mentioned are things that are also common to other animals and actually to plants for that matter. So it's something like being shaped by culture that is the only thing that's specifically human. And then I think this quote from Charles Mills that you made in the episode, Lee and Jason just repeated, namely that only a white person would deny their own embodiment. That shows the way in which what gets counted then beyond embodiment, mortality, natality, as shaped by our culture, is always open, therefore, to the influences of that culture. And I, from my philosophical position, would say by ideology. Mm -hmm. So I think what I hear both of you saying is something like, Humanity is defined more by its sociality than its biology. But like, here's my question now. How far are we willing to commit to that definition? Because, I mean, chat GPT is more social than a lot of biological humans that I know. <laughs> so if we're going to talk about the balance of biology and sociality, I think that we get into really dicey territory. Well, can I just say, and very quickly, that in signing on to Jason's emphasis on enculturation... I don't mean to say that those other aspects like embodiment, natality, and mortality are therefore irrelevant. I just think it doesn't pick us out as humans. And that does show a commonality, but it shows a commonality with all living things. Mm -hmm. So I would still emphasize embodiment. But sociality does too as well, right? Like, I mean, if the categories were natality, mortality, embodiment, and sociality, that would also put us in with wolves and dolphins and bears and many other things. Uh, which I'm fine I with. might be okay with that too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but this uh, this is not a team selecting <laughs> exercise, <laughs> you know. Like, so let me go back to my initial question, which is that I do think that we have knee jerk definitions slash recognitions of humanity yeah. that you know may not be thetic to us, but are nonetheless operative in the way that we think. And I worry that some of those are not well thought out. Lee, would you mind explaining to David what you mean by thetic? Formulated as a thesis in our mind. Formulated as a positive claim. I agree with you. I think that for the most part, most of us, especially normal people who live normal <laughs> lives, not philosophers, um, <laughs> the question of what a human is is never something that gets in the way of their recognizing humans when they see them or, or are around yeah. them. I mean, with the general point, I agree. I mean, I think that what, what Lee is saying is pushing back against a certain kind of emphasis on the socially constructed and a failure to recognize the biological and natural basis of humanity. And I totally agree with that. And the material conditions, you know, going back to the how we differ from wolves, unlike wolves, human beings are really good at not recognizing their commonality with other human beings. 
Hmm. This goes back to how much the fourth category can scramble the other ones that human beings are very good through cultural or, as Rick said, ideological processes failing to recognize their commonality in a way that I don't think – I mean – Maybe other animals do this too. You know, orcas eat other animals of their own species. Maybe they don't see the commonality of other porpoises when they're out there, but I have no idea. I'm not an orca. I think that human beings more than other animals are capable of as much as recognizing, not recognizing their commonality. Okay. Let me ask you guys this. What do you think would constitute human extinction? Clearly, if I asked you what would constitute extinction of human beings, you have to have some notion of what a human being is. I'm not sure that's the case. Like biologically, I could say the extinction of human beings would be when I am the last one of my kind with whom I can have sex and produce offspring. Uh, that's begging the question, right? When you say I'm the last one of my Minecraft. kind, you're begging the question. No, no. Right? What, I, what I mean to say is there is no other being with whom I can have sex and produce offspring. So you have definitely a biological definition of the human being, like a Linnaeus definition. I don't know if it's Linnaeus, but it is biological. Two things. One- Given that I'm the one who brought up the enculturation or whatever, it seems to me I'm committed to some view that that has to be integral to the human as well. That biological recognition is not sufficient for human existence, that human beings have to exist in a social relation. The second thing, and here's my attempt to sort of – I'm going to dodge this question because um, <laughs> this is something – you know, in the episode, I said human nature can't live with it, can't live without it. And I do think that one of the things I find very interesting – and we spent a lot of time in the episode talking about a specific view of human nature, isolated, competitive, self-interested. And I wish a little bit we spent more time talking about just the problem of defining human nature itself. And on this yeah. point, I'm very influenced, as in a lot of points, I'll confess – by Etienne Balibar's discussion of political anthropology, where he says- Why is says, this you know, the first we're hearing about this, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> and Balibar says, he talks about this idea that every definition you could give of the human would necessarily leave a kind of intolerable exception or like a thing that would be excluded, but you'd feel wrong in excluding it, mm. right? If you said speech, you would have to deal with biological human beings who cannot speak. Even if you said thought, reason, you'd be struck with some human beings who would not. So that for him, that is in some sense the can't live with aspect of any discussion of human nature that every time you define human beings, you're left with a remainder that seems to trouble the very existence of the concept. I agree with that, but I also agree with the second point I made, human nature can't live without it too, that we're constantly drawn back to that problem, that somehow the idea of just leaving human nature undefined seems equally unsatisfactory, which is why you guys are not going to let me get away with this as my answer, because you're going to insist <laughs> that I still need to come up with the definition of the last human being. And I'm afraid I can't, and I'm trying to explain to you why I'm okay with that. Wait, Lee, how would you know that human beings are extinct? Like, I have maybe the easiest answer to this, which is that I don't know, because I think that the category of the human is perhaps infinitely expandable, as it has been for millennia. So I do want to say to Jason, though, that 
I really like his definition because it gets him out of the problem, which is to say because human beings are fundamentally defined by their sociality, that the moment there's only one human being, that human beings have already ceased to exist. But now, Lee, you saying that makes me come up with my definition. Human beings are extinct the moment there is no being who is concerned about whether human beings are extinct or not. Upon listening to this episode, Jason's point about human nature, we can't live with it, we can't live without it. I 100% now am of the mind that I can't live without it. So (laughs) thank you, Jason, for that. A win. (laughs) Yeah, it is. We're keeping straight. I thought this wasn't about joining teams. Let's talk about revolutionary mathematics. Well, one thought I had while listening to the episode again is, you know, as much as Dirk did a very good job, and I'm not going to reproduce it here, so go listen to the episode about the way in which Bayesian statistics are, in some sense, more shaped around human action and the extent to which human beings are constantly remodeling their actions in response to their perception of the probabilities. It still struck me how very difficult it is to live with a probability, mm. right? If you tell me there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow, I'm probably going to decide it's going to rain tomorrow and I'm going to act accordingly. I'll bring my umbrella. What really drove this home was trying to live through the probabilities we're all trying to deal with now in the age of COVID. Especially, I think, early on before Omicron, when the first vaccines came out, people were like, oh, I got vaccinated. I'm bulletproof. I'm going right. to go do whatever I want. I was one of those people. Yeah, when it was in some sense, you know, even a 90, a high 80% is not 100. And then there's the other side of it too. People hear about breakthroughs and they're like, well, the vaccines don't work. That proves my theory. When we're all trying to grapple with the fact that even though we know that in the real world, probabilities don't exist, things either happen or they don't happen, that we have to somehow figure out a way to live without breaking into those binary divisions and recognizing that we have an increased chance of not getting seriously ill, but that's not the same as not getting it. Can we just talk about the bad reasoning or critical thinking that is involved? Jessen talks about how there is no such thing in the real world as probability. There is no 45% chance of rain tomorrow. It either rains or it doesn't. But because people convert these probabilities in ways that guard against, as he says, having a Dutch book made against them, Mm -hmm. they end up taking the p-value and interpreting it in a Bayesian framework. Interpreting the p-value as it is true that there is a 45% chance that it will rain. Yeah, so... For our listeners who haven't read the book, I think, Lee, you're right that in the book, that is not only an important aspect, but it's a larger aspect than ever came up in our conversation. And so our listeners might get the wrong impression that this is sort of a side part of his argument. 
I've heard some interviews with Nate Silver, who, you know, everyone thought when he, what was the first election he predicted? Was it Obama's? It was Obama. Yeah. And yeah. since he was the only one, everyone was like, oh my God, this guy is a genius, a math genius, and the math will tell us the truth all the time. And then, you know, when he predicted Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, everyone was like, ha, I see, math doesn't predict <laughs> everything all the time. And he was like, um, excuse me, but in fact it does. Because if you look at what I said, I said that Hillary Clinton has an 80% chance of winning. That means she has a 20% chance of not winning. And this was one of those 20%. And so, like, there's a way in which he wants to insist there is no such thing as probability. Hillary Clinton either will win or not win. And this is the probability of A or B, but it's going to be either A or B. If there's an 80% chance of A, the fact that B happens does not disprove that there was an 80% chance of A. But on the other hand, I think, Lee, as you point out, and I think this is Jason's weather example, that when it says there's a 70% chance of snow, I go to bed thinking, oh, it's going to snow tomorrow. All of this are problems that have been highlighted by Tim Nitgebu, a person that you should follow on Twitter, who was the founder and director of the Distributive Artificial Intelligence Research Institute, which points out many of the problems with AI's use of Bayesian models. Mm. There are many. Among them are what's called overfitting, so where the model becomes too closely aligned to the training data and performs poorly on new or unseen data. Bayesian models can be computationally expensive, making them difficult to scale. And of course, data availability. So Bayesian models require large amounts of data to train, and they may not perform well with limited data sets. And one of the things I mentioned, and Lee kind of signed on to this, is to the extent that Bayesian statistics are at use in recommendation algorithms, I'm surprised at how shitty internet (laughs) recommendation algorithms are. And I think about, for example, ads. I'm getting shown ads for the thing I just bought. I think something has gone wrong with Netflix's recommendation algorithm. I think I mentioned Pandora, that music genome project. Something has gone wrong with that as well. But I just read an article by Cory Doctorow in Wired Magazine, but it was originally on his website because Cory Doctorow publishes everything with a Creative Commons copyleft license. But it was about what he calls, and he didn't coin this term, the enshittification of the internet. Ah, uh, I read that too. It's so brilliant. It is fantastic. Yes. But one of the things he opened my eyes to is that when the algorithm is shitty and producing for me shitty results, that's probably a sign that the algorithm is not written for me as a target. And in that case, Mm. it's written for the advertiser as a target. Mm. In other words, the company is selling both the consumer and the advertiser, and sometimes they can make more money off the consumer, and sometimes they can make more money off the advertiser. And so the shittification of the internet begins the moment in which the company prefers the advertiser and thus produces a shitty experience for the user. I began to see then that it's not just that Bayesian statistics makes for shitty algorithms. 
but that also I now begin to see that there might be a plan behind very shitty algorithms. I did not read the doctoral article that you guys referred to, but I do remember from the interview, Justin stressed that these algorithms are not really geared to be true. They're geared to be profitable. And on that note, I have my own little theory, and this is totally an untested theory as to why you keep seeing ads for things you might have already purchased. I really think on some level, it might be intentional as a way to kind of combat buyer's remorse that is trying to Mm. remind you of how much you wanted the thing after you buy it. Like sometimes when I plan trips to visit my mother, my mother lives in Florida, I will continue to see ads and things about traveling to Florida long after I bought the ticket, long after I've gone there and so on. And I really think they're trying to sell me on an experience I already had because they're always like scenes of beautiful beaches and so on. They're trying to tell me, didn't you have a good time in Florida? I'm convinced that the bug is on some level a feature. Maybe you guys are right. Maybe this thing of selling to the advertisers makes more sense, but it does seem to me that the data is available, right? Going back to the limitations, the data that I purchased the thing is available, but because that data doesn't shape what I see, I mean, an advertiser's world is where you still view the product you purchased through the advertiser's lens and you never think, why did I buy this dumb thing? Or why did I go on this (laughs) stupid trip? Because you're still seeing it the way the advertiser wants you to see it, where it's still the cool thing you saw online and it's still the advertiser's view of a trip to Florida, which always looks better than any trip to Florida. I don't like Florida. But anyways, it was better than any trip to Florida Florida. could ever be. Jason, I was really also struck by Jessen's claim that these models have no interest in being true. They're only interested in being profitable because doesn't this just emphasize the point that we're more interested in things being valuable than true? And this kind of brings me back to your anecdote about the Sydney Portier mm. knit tie that mm-hmm. you mentioned in the podcast. One of the most worrisome outcomes of the automatic production of knowledge derived from Bayesian models is that it just reinforces individualism. What's interesting to you and not what is intersubjectively true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was thinking about that in re-listening to the episode as well. And for some reason, this scene from The Devil Wears Prada came into my mind, where Anne Hathaway's character refuses to buy into the fashion industry and so on. And her boss gets angry with her at one point, and she's like, oh, you think you're so special because you're wearing that retro blue sweater. But would it surprise you to know that that color, it's called Cerulean Blue, honey, was first shown by Oleg Cassini at New York Fashion Show, blah, 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 and that a whole team of consultants and advertisers were in the basement of some Target, and they knew that they could produce the desire on you to buy that. So you think you're not a part of this, honey? Your desires have been produced by it. Yeah, and I think that would be an interesting sociological point if we were only talking about the way that humans affect other humans. Mm. But the thing here that's different is that we're talking about the way non-human influences affect the sociality and socialization and really subjectification of humans.
bartender has once again made last call. And so that concludes today's Afterthoughts. But if you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas that you'd like to share with us, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us on our Facebook page, on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast, or you can email us at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll be reading and responding to your comments throughout the week. So please do not hesitate to reach out to us. And don't be afraid to ask us whether or not we think people should have children. (laughs) (laughs) We should have to plumb Facebook to find that. If you have questions, just ask us. I understand why people have children. I just find it troubling. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 